The Gist is brought to you by Points of Courage, a new business podcast from Hiscox about courage. Get Points of Courage wherever you find your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 26th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In offensive presidential poetry news, there is lots of this, by the way. Just last week, Britain's Boris Johnson won a thousand pounds in a contest to write an offensive poem about President Erdogan of Turkey. Well done, Boris Johnson. But even more inspirationally, I was pleased to hear the report out of Myanmar, Burma, let's say the Burmese poet who had been serving a six-month jail term for a poem that poet has been freed. The poem, which was published on Facebook, concerned a former president of Myanmar and a tattoo that the poet had of the president on his penis. Now, there are a few translations of this president penis poem. As I understood it, the translation I read said, quote, a tattoo of the president is on my penis. My wife felt detestation when she married me. So I thought it meant that it was the name of the president on his penis. And that's specifically in Myanmar, former president Thien Sen, which is kind of a short name. I wasn't that impressed with getting Thien or Sen tattooed on your penis. Now, you want to come at me and tell me you tattooed the name of the Kazakhstan president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, on that appendage of yours? I'm impressed. Or you want to say that, hey, guess who I tattooed on myself? It's Kuwait Prime Minister Sheikh Jabbar el-Mubarak el-Hamad el-Sabah. That ain't bad. Or what about, hey, you know who's tattooed on my penis? It's Turkmenistan president Korbanguli Birdemu Kamadeov. Or let's go to Madagascar, where the president is named Ari Razonari Ma Pian, and the prime minister is Olivier Mahafli Solanandrasana. Now, if you want to talk Madagascar history on your penis, I would go with this reference to the real founder of Antananarivo, the capital of Madagascar. He, of course, being King Andrianampoin in Marina on your penis. I will read you the Wikipedia reference. Andrea Nampoin in Marina was born Rambo al-Salam Arazaka, short form Rambo al-Salama, around 1745 in central Madagascar to Princess Ranavalo Namdriam Bello Messina, daughter of King Andrian Bello Messina and her husband, Andrea Miara Manjaka. If you're interested in Madagascar genealogy, I have the entire family tree detailed on a series of penises, which I keep locked in a safe deposit box. Although I am thinking of having a calligrapher write it on a tasteful leather-bound penis that I'm considering giving to my mother for her birthday. On the show today, it's an Antan twig, not an Antananarivo, but an Antan twig, wherein I'm sure people will criticize my pronunciation of foreign names and phrases. Not up there, though. But first, the man who I think really might be the most prolific person in comedy today, Paul Shear. He's the founder of Human Giant. He was on the FX show The League. He was uh, behind the Adult Swim comedy series NTSF SDSUV. And now he's out with a new show. It's on the streaming service full screen. It's called Filthy Preppy Teens. And Googling it might not actually crash your server. Or it might. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
They say the ecosystem of a top prep school is like the ecosystem of a jungle. Predators and prey coexist amidst high enough temperatures to create humid, steamy conditions below the tree canopy. But tragically, we're losing elite prep schools at a rate of four square meters a year. And at this rate, no prep schools will exist. And as a result, the earth will suffer without their role in abating carbon, which in our analogy are tough kids from the inner city on scholarship. I actually don't know what I'm talking about. But I do know that the creator of Filthy Preppy Teens is here. He's uh, Paul Shear. I could have basically listed any number of 300 media properties and say, Paul Shear, the man behind them, is here. <laughs> Paul, how are you? How are you doing? I'm very good. And that was the best introduction <laughs> to anything that I'm <laughs> – anything, just in general, that I've ever done. <laughs> were you confused? Were you a little like, where's No, I was like, this is like Upton Sinclair in here. I, I, I thought like we're getting – I feel like we're really getting to the bottom of this. That's true. And pretty soon we'll be, uh, we'll be uncovering the condition of meat in the inner city. <laughs> okay. So what is the filthy – Preppy teens, and didn't it used to be filthy, sexy teens? And why did teens go from sexy to preppy? Simply because if you try to Google filthy, sexy teens, everything but that show shows up. I thought that might have been why the S on the ends of teens was a dollar sign. For the same reason. (laughs) Apparently, filthy, sexy teens did not test well, and it's not Googleable. Yeah. Uh, Or it's overly Googleable. Yes, exactly. it's crash your computer (laughs) Googleable. Exactly. It's uh, it's an NF, whatever that is, NFSW. Enjoying the view, darling? <laughs> Will you take a look at this, babe? They cook, they clean, they're Swedish. Who could ask for a better couple of kids? We've done good. You know, darling, we didn't raise Jorgen and Krill. No, but we did buy them online, and I, for one, believe in consumer pride. You know, sometimes I miss our long-lost children, Megan and Chad. But then I get a bite of one of Jorgen's Krillers, and oh. wow. I can't think of anything else except give me another bite of that crawler. So filthy preppy teens, yes. teens with the S, with the uh, dollar, dollar sign. With the dollar sign. I, I want to get into the taxonomy of all the shows you do, but this show is uh, cast with teenage actors. You do Children's Hospital, and yeah. all the people on that are adult actors, but they know they're doing comedy. They're in the comedy business. Yeah. And I would assume that the casting call for this, everyone who auditioned for these roles were also auditioning for the legit version of these roles too. Well, that's, yeah, very true. Like, you know, the funny thing about how this even came about was when I was doing NTSF SDSUV, which is like a parody of like CSI and NCIS, at the end of every episode, we'd spin off the show into another thing. And so we did this as a joke. That's how Filthy Sexy Teens started. And we were working with these like younger actors. And I was like, oh, this is interesting because can we make these people – not make them funny, mm-hmm. but can we give them a platform where they can do something that you don't normally get to see them do? And we were right about that, that they all feel that they want to do it because they're going in for the real version of all these shows and they're playing everything so serious. I think what was fun about them, when we kind of realized this early on, not playing to the humor. Mm-hmm. Just deliver the line the way that you would do it on Teen Wolf and we'll handle the other side of it, which is just writing the funny line. And that's what we kind of found the best balance of. That's what uh, Zucker, Abram Zucker, one of the guys who yeah. actually work with the actors, that was, you know, the early revelation with Leslie Nielsen. Play it, Leslie, not as if you know it's funny, but yeah. play it totally straight. And but that's, y- I think, the difference. It's tricky because – I think parody gets a bad rap Mm -hmm. in a sense because I think when we think parody, we start to think like Scary Movie 5. And I think that people are like, oh, it's 
jokes. I'm going to play jokes. Like, you know, like <laughs> eyes bulging out of their head, human cartoons. And we've always been like, no, no, ground it, ground it, ground it. We want to make it feel real. And even on NTSF, like, it's, yes, it's a comedy set in this world, but we have to, like, embrace these characters a little bit because that other version can't sustain. You just can't, you know, do you want to watch it? So I was talking with Erin Hayes, she was in, and she's yeah. great. And so the point I made with her is, okay, Children's Hospital doesn't exactly do that 100%. I mean, if they were playing, if you just took a scene and something happened and they were playing it for real drama, yeah. they dial it back 12%, yes. something like that. Yeah. So when you get really good or when you, when you trust the actors or want to go with the actors enough to make it as funny as you can while keeping it... I think the word you use is grounded. So it's yeah. not totally straight, but it has a grounding of straightness. Like to me, the whole idea is we create a world, we create the rules to that world, and then we go, all right, that's that's what we're living in. Yes. So we know that that's what it is. So it will never go over here or over here. So yeah, it's not like you're playing drama exactly. It's a it's a tightrope walk, you know, like but Kate Mulgrew, like, only came from drama in Star Trek, and she would just nail it because you could put anything in her mouth and she'd just knock it out and it would be funny. And I think the same way with Henry Winkler. You give him the right – you write to him the right way and you got it. Yeah. So the other thing that you're pointing out to me in what you do and in our conversation here is there's this notion – I think it's a, I think it's a bullshit notion that there are some – there's some form of media that can't be satirized because it's already a satire. Right. And people say that about a lot of the genres that you actually satirize, right? Yeah. The Real Hot Wives, which is yeah, a yeah, show yeah. that you executive produce. People say, oh, how do you do a, a satire of them? They're already a satire. They're already right. in on the joke. This kind of show, yeah. the the teen show, it makes it harder. Sure, if you're satirizing something super straight, like the airport movies, that's a really rich target. Right. So it makes it a little harder. So what are the keys to satirize? satirize something that already thinks it knows it has a level of uh, winkingness about it. Well, if it's a parody, like I think Airplane was like a parody of the airport movie, yeah. you know? and like In fact, and, they actually bought the movie Zero Hour. They bought the rights oh, to it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they could rip off, and it wasn't a rip off. They owned right, it. They, owned they could it. write paragraphs of dialogue that was the same thing. You see, that yeah. makes sense. And you see, so what I think we've done uh, and I, when I talk about like we, it's like me, Rob Corddry, John Stern, David Wayne, we have taken a genre and said, let's do a comedy version of this. So the police show, right? So there's millions of those police shows, right? They're procedurals and, and yeah, they know what they're doing. So then you have Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is essentially doing a comedy version of a police, you know, of, of an hour long drama. It's, but it's done with comedy. And then we're taking it and we're going, all right. What we're drafting off of is the intensity of those shows. And then we're going to now make fun of that. Like, So it's taking an element of it. But then you have to create a comedy show that actually exists with real characters, not archetypes. It, to me, it's like, well, what would be a fun character to see in this world? All right. Well, this is one character that's at a level of eight. What if we did that character at the level of 11? And how would that affect the world? So it, it's just, yeah, I think it's about that. I don't know. Like, build, again, world building and character building and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And talking about the intensity of it, that's interesting. That's an interesting insight. But also, if there's something on a show, so you have the guy from yeah. Teen Wolf. Uh, yeah. So there's, we know what, we know what that plot line is. That's already a kind of comic thing. So you have like a the leprechaun version of that. Yeah, we we did a thing where it's like, all right, they're treating this so seriously. Like yeah. Teen Wolf was a movie when I was growing up, you were growing up, where, you know, Michael J. Fox turns into a wolf, becomes amazing at basketball, yes. and like all the girls love him, right? Yes. I mean, it's a ridiculous movie. It's a comedy movie. Someone goes, you know what? We need to make this serious. They buy 
Teen Wolf, and then turn it into a hour-long brooding MTV drama, which is hilarious to me. And they treat it, this idea of turning into a wolf, dead serious. And it's very brooding. And so we're like, well, let's take that level of intensity and turn it into another weird mythical character, a leprechaun. So this kid is turning into a leprechaun. Like he's noticing like every time he sees coins on the ground, he wants to go grab them. You know, he has a, you know, he starts to know things about Irish history, you know? So he's like, he's getting into it. So it, it's about References like, to shillelaghs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like, and you know, and what, and to continue that trend, like every show does like a Christmas episode and it's like, we did a St. Patrick's Day episode, you know, everybody's excited for St. Patrick's Day. So that's when he kind of comes out. It, it's all about like finding those things and like, well, if someone can take, a comedy, turn it into a drama. We can take their drama and then even turn it one level more because there's nothing more ridiculous. It's like, yeah, turning into a teen wolf and turning into a teen leprechaun to me are pretty equal. Now, some of the other things that you do, you're in Fresh Off the Boat. Yes. The League. Mm -hmm. Is the League done? The League is done. We did seven years and the final season will be coming up on Netflix. It already aired on FX, but yeah. You write a couple of uh, Marvel comic books. Yes. Okay, so I had a friend of our show, Matt Dix, in, and he's a little like you. He's a DJ, he's a novelist, he's a short story guy. And I was asking him, when you have three projects going, how do you mentally give your attention? I mean, it's great to come up with ideas, but right. you have to organize a little. He told me the craziest thing. He takes his dog for a walk, uh-huh. and if the dog turns left, he thinks about ideas for the novel, and if the dog oh, wow. turns right, he thinks about his storytelling project. But do you have any organizational ways? And we should also note if people, I guess fresh off the boat, you're following the script, yeah. but the league, you know, it's very improvised. So it's not just acting, even though acting is a, a no, the a league skill. Is, the but you league have to be thinking about so many different ideas for different projects. How do you organize your head for that? Well, I think I've kind of like warped my head a little bit. I'm a big GTD person, like the getting things done and, and list making and just kind of looking at things from a macro level a lot of times. And not everything's hitting at the same time. You know, it's it's not like I am doing two hours in the morning where I'm working on one show and then going to another show and working two hours and then working on another show. It's like a lot of the times, Filthy Preppy Teens, for example, we shot eight half-hour shows in 11 days, which was crazy. Most shows would take eight weeks. But that's that short time means for 11 days, I am laser-locked into the production of that show. Now, before that show started, we're writing scripts. So I'm a little bit involved in that. I'm writing my own scripts. I'm overseeing the scripts. And then I'm also at the same time, I was shooting a movie with Nicolas Cage. So I'd shoot that movie during the day, a couple hours a day. And I'd come home at night and I'd write. And I think what I always like to do is switch it up. Like the way I come fresh to another thing is by working on something else. So it's sort of like, all right, great. If I spend a little bit of time working on this comic book, that's like kind of wiping my head clean. Mm -hmm. And then I come back and I look at uh, like, say, like Party Over Here, which is this Fox show I'm doing with The Lonely Island. And I'm fresh because I'm not spending 12 hours a day looking at one screen going this. So it keeps on refreshing my perspective. And there are days where it gets to be a logjam, weeks where it gets to be a logjam, where I'm like, I'm watching a cut of one thing. I'm going over here. But I do feel like as long as I can allocate that time, it's allowing me to stop thinking about one thing. It just allows me to come back refreshed. When you were doing Human Giant, yeah. right, you must have gotten feedback, people telling you this is too weird for the mainstream, you're mm-hmm. losing audience. And you probably thought, well, A, who cares, or B, we found our audience. But now if you look at the ratings of Adult Swim, which is 
crushing Daily yeah. Show. When you look at how popular these weird things are, what do you think? Were, were people just wrong back then, the gatekeepers, or have we actually sort of taught audiences to embrace more weirdness and to and to go out there more in the way that music ha- used to be very simple structures. And now if you listen to, you know, what Beyonce's putting out there, it's blowing people's minds about how complex it is. This is what I will say. When I air a show on cable and it's weird, people are like, I get it. Awesome. I love this. This is so mm. crazy. This is so awesome, funny, weird. And then when you air that same material on a network, the network audience is a little bit different. They're like, what is this? And I think the network is trying to find that balance. So I think that, yes, cable's cultivated weird sensibilities, and it's out there, but it's not as prevalent. I mean, it's the same reason why probably our favorite shows on network are probably not the America's favorite shows. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's the difference 30 between, Rock, right. Yeah, 30 yeah. Rock. And, and the fact that, like, Kimmy Schmidt was for NBC. And, and they, they were rejected like, it. Like, and they're like, boom, get it out of here. Go to Netflix. Like, that yeah, and, and like, I've heard them say, and that wasn't a mistake. We still don't think it would do well for our and, business and I, model. And I, yeah. and, I, and I think they're right. Yeah. Because you can't – you have to market to the right audience, you know. And it's like – there. I always say, like, people are like, oh, Larry the Cable Guy isn't funny or whatever. It's like, no, he is, but just not to you. And there's – and I think that people get the most defensive with their sense of humor. It's like there's a reason why Kevin Hart can sell out – uh, Madison Square Garden and Louis C.K. can sell at Madison Square Garden. They're not the same audience. They're different audiences, and that's cool. But like, I think people feel so protective over their sensibility, like, their sense of comedy. Like, you know, we had this sketch, and it's one of my favorite sketches, but it's super weird. It's like they the uh, they come out and they're like, "Hey, you know, we come from an improv background. We want to do a, a, some improv here. Who has an interesting life story?" And somebody's like, uh, "Yeah, I'm a chef. I'm a this." And we have an audience plant, and the guy's like. Uh, I'm an EMT. Great. Well, come on up here. And they bring him up. He's like, all right, so tell us about your day. He's like, uh, it was um, actually a really it was a sad day. We um, there's a five car pile up and uh, a lot of like five people died. And 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 the story just keeps on getting more and more depressing. And they're trying to do like this dumb like fun improv game. And this guy's telling this morbid story about how these people's heads were decapitated. There were bodies on the ground. It was like they found a wedding ring. And it's like, and you're watching them melt down as they're interviewing this guy. And they're like, this is not funny. And I'm like, it is funny. It is. It's, you may not find that funny, but it is funny. Like the funny's in the tension and the network saying, there's too much tension. Yeah. It's like, well, this is like, and it's, so I think that there's room for that. And so I think what we Mm -hmm. play with a lot in that show is, doing something super mainstream. Like we have something that's like mansplaining hotline and it's a hotline for guys to call so they can explain things to women. Mm -hmm. And then so we can do that. And that's like gettable, easy mainstream. Then we get to do our weird, you know, thing like a cotton candy cooking show. And she's like, all right, let's wash our cotton candy. She puts it in water and it disappears. And she's like, wait, where's the cotton candy? And like, just keeps on trying to wash cotton candy, but not understanding that it can't be washed. So like, like we can see it's, it's riding that balance of, you're giving a little bit of everything and hopefully you break through, you know. Paul Shear inside the NFL, man versus food, and Medea goes to jail. <laughs> it's just well, it's actually Medea Halloween special. Medea Halloween. It's just easier to list the properties that he's not affiliated with. <laughs> Filthy Preppy Teens is the newest show, and he's doing some comedy in a dumpster soon. We didn't even get into that. Oh my God. Paul. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Starting a business takes 
guts. Many entrepreneurs risk big for rewards that aren't guaranteed. Hear some of their stories on the new podcast, Points of Courage, brought to you by Hiscox. This series captures conversations about the moments that encourage making the leap to start a business and how to approach the challenges that come with it. Hosted by Jessica Jackley, author, public speaker, and co-founder of Kiva.org, the world's first crowdfunded microlender. Points of Courage is a powerful resource for active and aspiring entrepreneurs, business owners, and anyone who believes that nothing great is achieved without risk. Get an intimate look into the realities and rewards of running a business in America. Subscribe to Points of Courage wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. Now the spiel, it's an Antan twig. So an Antan twig is, of course, our name for a three-week period that is derived from a couple of things. One, the old English word for 21, an Antan twig, and two, my strong conviction that there needs to be a word for a three-week period. So there's this rule on the internet that no matter how popular your site is, it can be made, I don't know, 10 or 20% more popular with the addition of a cat. And while this podcast isn't on the internet per se. Without the internet, there could be no podcast. So I should have surmised that the reaction to a spiel I did was huge because it was about that time that Kevin Spacey became a cat. I'm a cat! Actually, Kevin, you're more than a cat. You're the embodiment of what I call the magic workaholic dream dad. You know, Jack Frost with Michael Keaton and Liar Liar, all part of this genre. And I asserted that there were a bunch of Robin Williams movies in this genre, and I included Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, Nicholas McCollum wrote in, a couple other people too, the problem with Robin Williams' character and Mrs. Doubtfire is the opposite of most of the others. It's not that he works too much and is out of touch with his kids. It's that he's terrible at holding down a job and always wants to play with his kids, thus McCollum asserts Mrs. Doubtfire is the inverse of the genre. This is so interesting because as I was discussing the idea of the magic workaholic dream dad with Slate colleagues over Slack, as a matter of fact, Aisha Harris of Slate said, hey, Mrs. Doubtfire, that's part of the magical transformation genre. And I said, actually, in Mrs. Doubtfire, he was too attentive a dad. She was the workaholic mom. And Aisha pointed out, but I thought he was really bad at actually caring for them. Heart was in the right place, but still. And I said, you know, you're pretty much right. So let's not call it a correction. Let's just say I anticipated that, Nicholas McCollum, and we're all right. But the big piece of feedback I got on the magically transformed dads was people saying, you're wrong, Mike, when you said there are no moms in this genre. What about Brave and Freaky Friday? All right. First of all, I hadn't considered Brave. I hadn't seen Brave. And when people pointed out what the plot was to me, I said, actually, it's a little like Freaky Friday and why I didn't include Freaky Friday. First of all, in the first Freaky Friday with Jodie Foster, it wasn't a workaholic mom. It was made in 1976. She was a stay-at-home mom, but she was, of course, overworked. And one plot element was, hey, cook a dinner for 25 people. Hilarious. But in the later Freaky Friday, the Lindsay Lohan 
Jamie Lee Curtis version, she was an overworked therapist mother. But the point of the transformation of the woman in Freaky Friday, and this is true with Brave, was not so much to show the mother the error of her ways, but to make both mother and daughter see life from each other's point of view. So I don't know if this is fitting. I don't know if it's gendered, but it wasn't about giving the parents a comeuppance. It was about bringing parent and child together and having sort of a conversation. It was about perspective. The magically transformed dad receives wisdom from on high and is changed by it. The magically transformed mom, the body switched mom, learns something, gains some perspective. Corrections. This one is from Fernando Torres. Others wrote in. Geiger counters do not measure radiation. I stand corrected. And then sometimes there's always the stuff you leave out, right? You probably have this in your own life. And you may have said, I wish I had a podcast and this way I could put all the stuff in the podcast. Unless, you know, you're Ira Glass who's listening, in which case you do have a podcast. And you probably still leave stuff out. I left some stuff out. I'm kind of kicking myself. It was when I was talking about losing and I was talking about all the political campaigns now that they just can't admit to losing the supporters. I, I said, I don't think Bernie Sanders should drop out at all, but the supporters will not admit that he's losing. It's all rigged. It's all being stolen from him. And no, you're losing. And my idea was that we have so little actual contact with losing anymore. The loss of life isn't as prevalent as it once was. Vocabulary around losing isn't as big as it once was. And I wanted to bring up a couple other things that I kicked myself for for forgetting. One is TV shows. It used to be that TV shows got canceled. I loved Mr. Merlin. Zach becomes Merlin's apprentice. He's a mechanic in San Francisco. Boom, it's done in a year. Mr. Merlin's canceled. I couldn't kickstart it. I couldn't Yahoo it. I couldn't in any way resurrect it. I just had to deal with the loss that Mr. Merlin was canceled. Now it's a movie. It's a Kickstarter campaign. It's going on Hulu. It's cosplay. There's a video game. Nothing ever dies. We never lose the TV shows that we once liked. And the second thing I should have brought up, a different form of media, video games. And I was reminded of this when I was reading Chuck Klosterman's new book, Why Might the NFL Be Endangered? He posits it might be video games games. Kids these days, oh, don't I hate saying that phrase, but kids these days, in an article in the New York Times where they interviewed coaches, they were grousing about kids these days, they play video games. But you know, it's true. In video games, you get to keep playing. You don't get cut from the team in video games. You just reset. You get a new life. So in campaigns, there's no reboot. There's no bonus life. There's no, would you like to start where you left off? In real life and political campaigns, it's all, it's a rigged system. And what about the super delegates? And there are closed primaries, but it's basically the same thing. And I should have said this. Now on to the Lopstar, wherein we give an award for the greatest listener, the greatest Facebook poster, Twitterer, at Pesca Me, Pesca M-I, or Slate Gist, or just in any way, the greatest interactor. Now, the last couple have gone to people who've listened to the gist far and wide. People in Australia, people in South Africa, people said, I listened all over the world. And so Whit Thurlow wrote in and said, I'm a mountain guide, and I have listened to the gist on every continent but Antarctica, climbing the tallest peak in Italy, climbing the north face of Mount Iger, at a bus station in Lima, 
Peru, though I'd be equally impressed by Ohio, and sleeping under a rock in New Zealand. I thank you for your listenership, but I can't have the Lopstar become this. I can't have this just being an arms race until eventually we're listening to the gist in outer space. Because if you're in outer space, you probably should be attending to some other things, although there is a lot of time to kill on those Skylabs, right? So I am going to give the Lopstar of the Antan Twig Award to Mike Flack. The other day I was talking about how a political party in Tunisia was originally named the Islamic Tendency Party. And I liked how kind of moderate and respectful that was. You know, not at all pushy. And I suggested instead of ISIL or ISIS, how about ISIS or Hezbollah Bob? And Mike Flack wrote to me on Twitter. He said, along with ISIS and Hezbollah Bob, we can't forget the toned down radicalism of (laughs) Al-Qaeda. That's good. That was really good. I really liked that. And I was more impressed as I looked at Mike Flack, at Mr. Flack, at his Twitter feed, because the last thing he tweeted was in June of 2013, apparently lost eight pounds in three weeks. Now, if you include tweets at people, because he obviously tweeted me last week, 10. He's only tweeted 10 times all year, and one was to suggest Al-Qaeda. And with that kind of wit, and remember, brevity is the soul of wit, with that kind of controlled wit, Mike Flack, you are the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson, and her pathway to efficiency is described in a new series on the streaming service Watch App. Key to her efficiency, ignoring the new streaming service Watch App. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, utilizes the Peer eScope peer-to-peer peering service. Andy Bowers, as chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is out with a new podcast, Filthy Disgusting Greens, members of the German labor movement who've really let themselves go. Watch it on the new service, Bilgrinjetska. I said it once, I'll say it again. Andrea Nampoin in Marina. And now I'll never have to say it once more. Peru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.